of God. And the last time we looked at the book of Revelation and the vision that we saw, we experienced a rather, rather grisly scene. And after the wicked had been gathered from the vine of the earth and cast into the great winepress of the wrath of God, their blood covered the earth up to horses' bridles. Now, if you're at the ranch, you know that's pretty high. Okay? That's a grisly scene. It's not a pretty picture at all. And few of us like to think of such things. But the evil, that the reality of evil demands that it be dealt with. We cannot ignore sin and expect it to go away. And God cannot overlook sin and pretend it doesn't exist. Justice demands that God act in the face of sin, and act he does. He doesn't jump right on it and nip it in the bud. In fact, he often allows it to go much further than we think he should. I mean, who hasn't questioned why God didn't move to stop some particular atrocity, especially if it touched them or their loved ones? But then again, who hasn't been grateful for the patience of God when it came to their own sins? So while we may not understand why God does what he does or allows what he allows, we do have assurances from Scripture that God will act and that the full wrath of God will be poured out on unrepentant sin. This truth is nowhere presented more graphically than in the visions of Revelation. And in our study for today, we're going to see the bowls of God's wrath being poured out. But before we get to that, we first have a brief introductory vision that reassures us of the righteous nature of God's wrath. Revelation 15. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and Glorify thy name, for thou alone art holy, for all the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls 
full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Well, the scene opens with another sign in heaven. As John looked up, he saw seven angels who had seven plagues that were about to be sent to earth as expressions of God's wrath. Now, we've seen plagues before in Revelation. In fact, we've seen a series of seven events happen as seven angels sounded seven trumpets. And at least part of the activity was specifically referred to as plagues. Plagues brought upon mankind to get them to repent of the works of their hands, their idolatries, their murders and sorceries and immoralities and thefts. That was the purpose of the seven trumpets of warning we looked at several weeks ago. Warnings in nature, warnings within the man, within the heart of man, and warnings that come from the sinful activity of mankind. They were pictures of the way God uses calamity and woe to draw men to himself. We also noted, however, that the vast majority did not heed the trumpets of warning. They did not repent. We're therefore about to be given a vision of another aspect of the calamities that are sent upon mankind. We're about to see how some of these same things serve not as warnings, but as expressions of the wrath of God. But before we come to that, the vision changes. And John's attention is drawn once again to the court of heaven. There he sees pictured those who have come off victorious from the beast and his image and the number of his name. This vision is a projection into the future, showing those who refuse to bow the knee to Caesar and those down through the ages who remain faithful in the face of the various beasts that arrive on the scene. These are shown singing praises to God, standing before him on the sea of glass that we first saw in the fourth chapter. A sea of glass that appeared to be a crystal floor under the throne of God, a floor that reflected the glory of God which emanated from the throne. Here, however, we're told the sea of glass was mixed with fire, picturing, I believe, that the wrath of God also emanates from the throne. We're then told that these victors were singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. Now, why this is called the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb, we can only speculate. Some have noted a similarity to the song Moses led the children of Israel in singing after they crossed the Red Sea and the Egyptian soldiers 
had been drowned, and that's a possibility. It's perhaps even more likely that this is intended to be a con condensed version, I guess, of the song Moses sang to Israel just before he died. A song that he sang after having the completed book of the law placed next to the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And in that song, he warned Israel about the dangers of provoking God's anger by going after idols and ignoring his law. He also declared that nations that would take advantage of Israel's periods of chastisement would suffer the consequences of an angry God. And the song concluded with the following lines, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his, serpent, uh, his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. What's this song about? Well, I think in view of the fact that the song in Revelation is prefaced by seven angels coming with plagues to express the wrath of God and is followed by the bowls of God's wrath, it's reasonable to conclude that the righteous acts extolled by the saints were the acts of God's wrath prophesied in Moses' original song. Acts that are here confirmed as being righteous and true. And the fact that this is also referred to as the song of the Lamb indicates that even the Lamb of God recognizes the necessity of God's judgment and the righteousness of his wrath. We sometimes are given the impression that things have changed, that the nature of God has changed, but that is not true. God is unchangeable. The Lamb acknowledges the righteousness of the wrath of God. Well, after hearing this song, John watched as the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and seven angels who had the plagues came out of the temple dressed in celestial garb. Now, the temple that John saw pictured was apparently more like the portable tabernacle that had been constructed in the wilderness than the temples that had been built by Solomon, Zerubbabel, and then remodeled by Herod. In fact, the tabernacle was at times called the tabernacle of testimony because within it was kept the law of God. You see, if there was ever question about what God was doing, all one needed to do was check out what God had said. Clever idea. We're faced with the same issues today. If you want to know what God is doing, find out what he said he would do. It was recorded for God's people in the tabernacle. God had said in advance what he was going to do. And I believe this helps confirm the view that the song of Moses and the song he sang after placing the law beside the Ark of the Covenant declaring that it would remain there as a witness against them. It also makes clear that these angels weren't sent forth because of some kind of divine temper tantrum, that God just got mad and reached his limit. They came forth as a result of God's eternal commitment to seeing that justice is done and that unrepentant sin is punished. John then notes that one of the four living creatures 
that surround the throne of God gave to each of the angels a golden bowl full of the wrath of God. And the temple was filled with smoke, symbolizing the glory and power of God's wrath. And that no one was able to enter the temple until the angels had fulfilled their mission. It was too late for anyone to come into the presence of God to intercede. It was time for the seven bowls of the wrath of God to be poured out upon the earth. Revelation 16. We'll do it in sections. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous art thou who art and who wast, O Holy One, because thou didst judge these things, for they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Again, this is not a picture we dwell on. But you know, these bowls should sound familiar to you. Because in many respects, they're similar to the trumpets of warning that we talked about, again, a few weeks ago. The first trumpet, you may recall, caused hail and fire mixed with blood to be thrown to the earth, burning up one-third of the trees and all of the grass. The first bowl was likewise poured out upon the earth. But its effects were seen on the men who had worshipped the beast, not on the trees and the grass. The men were covered with loathsome and malignant sores. At the sounding of the second trumpet, something like a great burning mountain was thrown into the sea, and one-third of the sea became blood killing one-third of the creatures that lived in the sea and destroying one-third of the ships that sailed upon it. The second bowl was likewise poured out into the sea and became like the blood of a dead man, coagulated and decaying, and everything in the sea died. When the third trumpet sounded, a star fell from heaven into the rivers and springs, making them bitter and causing many to die. Similarly, the third bowl was poured out into the rivers and the springs. Only instead of making them bitter, it became water, turning, them, turning the water into blood. Now, the similarities, I think, are obvious, and we're going to find this to be true of the remaining bowls as well. They all seem to be picturing similar kinds of events, the trumpets and the bowls, but the effects of the bowls are more devastating. 
Whereas the trumpets affected only a portion of whatever they affected, usually a third, the bowls affected it all. All men who worshipped the beast were covered with sores. Everything that lived in the sea died. All those who poured out the saints' blood were forced to drink blood from the rivers and springs. Now again, a question arises, or several questions. When does all this take place? When does this take place? And are these events sequential, following one another? Chronologically, this is an important question to ask. We've been asking it over and over again in our study of Revelation. Are these visions sequential? Well, some would suggest that they are. Some view these pictures we get in the bowls as progressive judgments of God leading up to the final act of judgment, and that they will therefore come shortly before the end. But there's similarity to the trumpets and the fact that the end of all time and Christ's return was also pictured after the breaking of the seals and the trumpets and other visions of revelation leads me to believe these are pictures of how God pours out his wrath on unrepentant humanity throughout history. It's not just a picture of what's going to come. It's a picture of what is now taking place. And Romans 1.18 does make it clear that the wrath of God is now being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. God is not going to wait until Judgment Day to judge sin. He's doing it now. And those who fail to respond to his trumpets of warning, who refuse to repent, will feel his wrath whenever he chooses to express it. And that wrath can be expressed in life as well as in death. Indeed, many of the plagues that befall unrepentant humanity are direct acts of God. And the bowls of his wrath are now being poured out on deserving individuals and nations. Many of the catastrophic events that happen are indeed calls for repentance and expressions of God's judgment. Now, only God knows which are which. Whether the bad things that happen are trumpets of warning or bowls of judgment. And only God can discern for whom they're intended. It's not our place to say, well, God has done this to you for this reason. That's in God's hands. What the Scripture affirms is that God is now bringing judgment on sin. And many of the things that we see in nature and in life and in society are directly linked to God's activity. The scripture affirms this over and over again. God uses catastrophic events to call men to repentance and to bring judgment upon 
disobedience. Now, that's not to suggest that we should expect evil men to break out with loathsome and malignant sores and rivers to be turned to blood. The visions found here aren't meant to be taken literally. They're symbols of God's wrath. Pictures that express the wrath of God in very graphic ways. That's why I really didn't want the kids in here. I didn't want to give them nightmares. But it should give you nightmares. That's what they're intended to do. But they're not to be taken literally. We shouldn't be looking over our shoulder waiting for someone to break out, you know. And I don't think we're to be trying to find times in history when the sea actually turned to coagulated, decaying blood, nor are we to expect such to happen in the future. These, again, are symbols that make it plain that God does express his wrath on unrepentant mankind, and no one will be able to escape. Again, as I mentioned, we sometimes think he should act quicker for some, but then again, we're grateful he's delayed treatment on us. God takes care of it. Well, let's continue. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. Go back to our comparisons with the trumpets. Just as the fourth trumpet affected the heavenly bodies, so the fourth bowl affected the sun. But instead of making it grow dark, the bowl fired it up, making it scorch unrepentant men. And the fact that this wasn't a warning intended to bring men to repentance can be seen by the reaction of those affected. These individuals were so hardened that they responded by blaspheming the name of the God who has the power of these plagues. They didn't merely need their eyes opened. They knew they were responsible to God, and they knew God was behind what was befalling them. But they had chosen to blaspheme his name instead of repenting and worshiping him. This can also be seen in the fifth bowl. At the pouring out of the fifth bowl, the kingdom of the beast was darkened. It could be seen for what it really was. And the pain that was felt was apparently greater than the pain felt by sinful men at the sounding of the fifth trumpet. For they gnawed their tongues in pain. But still, they refused to repent. While gnawing their tongues, they blasphemed the God of heaven. They were beyond the point of repentance, and God knew it. His judgment, therefore, began even while the kingdom of the beast was still in power on the earth. But that kingdom was about to fall. Let's read on. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up. 
that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Magadan. We've come to Armageddon, or Har Magadan. The battle we always hear about when reading literature on the last days, but let's not jump to any conclusions about this. In fact, if you'll remember, at the sounding of the sixth trumpet, four angels were released from the Euphrates to stir up armies into battle. And here, when the sixth bowl is poured out, we see the Euphrates drying up, making way for the kings of the east, who were joined by the kings of the whole world and made ready for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. The kings were gathered together by three unclean spirits, like frogs, that came from the mouths of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. And the place at which they were gathered together, is called in Hebrew, Har-Megadon. Now, the fact that this does not follow chronologically the first five bowls that we've seen is pictured, I think, by the fact that the Euphrates is still flowing with what? Water. We'd already been told that the rivers had been turned to blood. So these are pictures. They're not a sequence of events. That's very important for us to understand. The Euphrates was still flowing with water when it was dried up. And then, if we insist on making Armageddon a literal battle, it's going to have to be led by three literal what? Frogs. Or frog-like creatures. So I don't think there's a reason to insist that this is a literal battle that's to be fought on a physical battleground. Besides, we really don't know where Har-Megadon or Armageddon is located. Even the best guess as to the meaning of Har-Megadon is the Mount of Megiddo. Now, several famous battles in the Old Testament actually took place on the plains of Megiddo, but there's no mountain in the plains of Megiddo. The closest thing to a mountain is a 13-acre mound that contains the remains of 20 cities that were built there one upon another over the centuries. And you certainly could not get 200 million horsemen pictured at the sixth trumpet on 13 acres. Now, Steve and Chris try to get a lot of horses on the ranch. You can't get that many on 13 acres. So it's unlikely that Har Megadon is supposed to represent a physical location on earth. 
The tie-in to Megiddo would simply help with the visualization of a battlefield. And by calling the battlefield the Mount of Megiddo, John spiritualized Megiddo and painted a picture of a spiritual battleground. Now, if that's the case, this bowl primarily pictures the final or a final confrontation between the forces of good and evil that takes place every time God's wrath is poured out and someone is eternally condemned. I think a primary understanding of that picture is the judgment that comes at the end of everyone's life when the battle is over. Now, that's not to say that this can't also picture a final showdown between good and evil that will take place before Christ returns. And we're going to get more looks at that in chapters 19 and 20. So let's just move on to the seventh bowl. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. There are flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There's a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be on earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plagues of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. As the seventh trumpet ushered in the reign of Christ and declared the judgment of the nations, so the seventh bowl pictured the fall of Babylon the fall of Rome, and the final judgment. When the islands and mountains disappear, as the earth is cleansed and remade for the eternal reign of Christ. Now, we're going to be given other visions that give us more details of these events. As I've mentioned before, Revelation is progressive in nature. We get visions that build upon each other. So we're going to go further into this picture as we study on. So we're not going to pursue it any further today. Let's just draw, finally, this to a close, by once again visualizing the wrath of God as seen in the bowls of his wrath. These are pictures that John is instructed to share with us. Pictures God once burned into our minds. Not something for us to overlook or dismiss. Just think about it again. The bowls of God's wrath as seen as as loathsome and malignant sores. As a sea of coagulated and putrid blood. 
as scorching heat and excruciating pain as Armageddon and the final destruction of the earth. These are the pictures we're given in the bowls of wrath. And as we think about them, we need to ask ourselves, do we want to face the wrath of God? If we don't, we better make certain we've repented and that we've accepted the gift of grace made possible only through Christ. And if we haven't done so, we better do so now while there's still time. Before smoke fills the temple of God and no one is any longer able to enter.